Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 12th delivery of Terrograms. In Terrograms Dispatch 12, we are in Charlottesville, Virginia, and are joined by Ruben Rainey. Ruben is a William Stone Whedon Professor Emeritus in the Department of Architecture and Landscape Architecture at the University of Virginia, where he taught for over 25 years. His courses included History and Theory of Landscape Architecture, and he has also lectured and published on, among others, the topics of Italian gardens, ethics, research methodology, and healing landscapes. He has recently investigated the work of Robert Royston, and together with J.C. Miller, has co-authored the book entitled Modern Public Gardens, The Suburban Parks of Robert Royston. Ruben is also the co-executive producer of a 10-part series of half-hour programs for public television on how gardens improve our lives and our communities. It is entitled Garden Story, Inspiring Spaces, Healing Places. Ruben brought us our last Terragrams discussion with Robert Royston, and we are happy to have him back. I want to start off by thanking you very much, Ruben, for, for allowing us to join you this morning. My um, pleasure. Here in Charlottesville. And, and I also want to thank you so much for making our last Terragrams possible. Your conversation with Robert Royston was really wonderful and very rich. And those of you who haven't, haven't heard it should go back to Terragrams 11 because it's a, a, a really great exposure to the work of Robert Royston and his insight into a very long, long practice. In this last Terragrams, you talked in depth with Robert Royston about the evolution of his work and the importance of many of his projects within his body of work, especially his, his suburban park projects. For our listeners that haven't heard this conversation, could you summarize the, the, the importance of Royston's work within the, within the current field of landscape architecture? Well, of course, we could spend the whole paragraph on, on that subject, but uh, I've discussed this with my co-author, J.C. Miller, who's a principal in, in the Royston office, and I think J.C. and I agree that there are three areas in particular that are part of his legacy that is of great relevance today. One of them has to do with his ideas on urbanism mm-hmm. and his concept of what he calls the landscape matrix. Royston believes that the way to order a city, and not only to order it, but to bring amenity and joy and civic celebration, is to have a network of interconnected spaces, plazas, parks, parkways, pedestrian paths, that form the skeletal structure or the matrix of a city. And that's a, that's a very viable idea. Of course, it's not a new one. It goes back to the 19th century in Olmsted Box at, uh, well, at the Emerald Necklace or the Buffalo Plant. But he's very much a believer in that, in that idea of, of urbanism, and I think that's one of the most important parts of his, of his legacy. Another one has to do with his emphasis on the psychological effects of space. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a modernist in the sense that space is the main medium of design, but it's not an abstract space. It's not a Cartesian grid, but it's space that engages you and creates deep feelings, uh, feelings of joy, feelings of uh, discovery, uh, feelings of serenity. So he's, he emphasizes that particular aspect of, of spatial design. Designs, whatever their form is, that are engaging, that, that, uh, that move you deeply. And I'd say the third thing has to do with his emphasis on the interrelationship between form 
and human use in, in particular. None of his designs are arts for art's sake, although he uses uh, biomorphic forms or analytical cubist forms, or I like Mark Tribe's term, uh, biocubism, that his, <laughs> uh, his designs display these, these kinds of forms, but they're all carefully orchestrated to serve human need. I mean, I'll give you an example. If you look at one of his playgrounds, say in Mitchell Park, which is one of his signature parks in Palo Alto, you'll see a, a, a children's uh, wading pool. It looks like an amoeba. It has mm -hmm. an amoeboid form. All right. That's true, but if you, if you look at it carefully, you'll see that the distance across is calibrated to the reach of a guardian's voice. Mm -hmm. That as the child, and this is for very young children, as, as the child moves away from the parent, the water becomes shallower. It's shallower in the center and it's deeper on the edges. And then the coping of the of the wading pool is just right for a small child to sit with their feet in the water so that this biomorphic form is very, very carefully modulated. And you can see that in, in all the work. There's no, none of it is arbitrary. And I think some people misunderstand some, some modernist work looking at these painterly-like uh, compositions thinking that they're somewhat divorced from, from human use, and they're not, especially in his work. And does this attitude extend into his work of gardens? Yes, absolutely. And, of course, that's where it all began. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of people in the post-World War II period, in the, say, 1945 on, they began as residential garden designers. Those gardens became the laboratories for larger-scale work, and, it's, and that's especially true of, of Royston's Parks. And in your book, you don't talk about the garden. Is there some something we're, we're waiting for in the future? Well, I, <laughs> I would say that we did mention the gardens. We just didn't go into an analysis. I mean, we, we actually showed illustrations that showed the resemblance between overall garden plans and park plans and also uh, elements in the parks. Because one thing that's, that people found appealing about his parks is that some of the details, like pergolas, they're a little bit larger scale, but they resemble what you would see in residential gardens. So we did mention it, but we were trying to write a fairly succinct book. Now, uh, JC and I are going to write another book, and thank you for bringing this up, on uh, Royston's gardens. Mm -hmm. And we're working on that now. And some of them are still existing with, with the original clients, but, of course, many of them have disappeared. Mm -hmm. yeah. Has there been a really big loss in the work that he, he's created? Uh, the answer is yes, especially anything in the public realm, like a park, is always going to be in, in, in jeopardy. It's, it's interesting because these parks are loved by the people who, who use them. And there are examples like in Mitchell Park where the Palo Alto Parks Department was going to create some substantial changes in Mitchell Park. And Palo Alto is a, a fairly stable community. I mean, there are people who've lived there for uh, a generation. And uh, people rose up and testified before the city council not to change that park that much. The thing that had to be changed was the play equipment, some of which, you know, was a little bit, people perceived it to be either dangerous or risky for litigation. So you have that, that condition, but the parks... Uh, Santa Clara Central Park is the icon of Santa Clara. And even the, the great picnic pavilion that's there, this, this uh, marvelous structure with a steel pole and chains that, that's uh, probably uh, over 50 feet high, is the logo on, this, on the city stationery. So 
the parks are popular, but there's constant pressure to simplify the planning plans, for example. Royston used a very large uh, plant palette in, in the early parks, and for reasons of security, police surveillance, a lot of the understory plants, or almost all of them, have been removed. And because of maintenance costs, uh, they've been simplified. And uh, park continues to exist, but it but it it's going to look a lot different. Whether you're talking about Mitchell or or Santa Clara Central, so you have that problem. The complete annihilation of all traces of his work. I don't think that's a danger yet. But there have been parks that have disappeared. I mean, Crucy Park in Alameda, which is a wonderful park that had one of the most uh, inventive of, of the playgrounds is totally gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally all it is now is just grass and a few trees. So they're, they're constantly in danger. Does the practice of landscape architecture have any tools in order to uh, preserve them or to stabilize, stabilize their existence? You mean as an emphasis in practice, or I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Um, are there any... Uh, perhaps legal tools to declare some of these places modern historic icons that should be preserved in order to maintain a certain heritage. Sure, and that may be the the most important strategy. It's something that I think occurs on a community-by-community basis, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends on how how enlightened the community is. I know that in the case of Mitchell Park, that some of the funding for the... I would call renewal of the park came from applications that that it was uh, restoring a 1950s mm-hmm. park. So it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the same with the residential gardens. I mean, I'm just getting into the research on that, but they're probably the most ephemeral of all landscapes. I mean, they taste change. You know, people want to build uh, McMansions and <laughs> knock out the you know. It, you know the whole story, and so a lot of those are absolutely uh, have disappeared. Have you had a chance to visit any of the yes. gardens that are still in existence? Yes, and and visited about five of them, and they are amazingly intact. But <laughs> but they've been pretty much single owner uh, situations where mm-hmm. people have lived there for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I say I might say the same is true of Garrett Ekbo's gardens. I, I went to. Uh, the Los Angeles area with him to look at some of his old gardens. It was the same story. Some were totally obliterated, and, and others were <laughs> compromised, <laughs> to say the least. And there were a few that were mm-hmm. were intact. How did you become interested in Royston's work? Well, I knew about him, of course. He he has a great reputation. I heard him lecture, uh, give a keynote address in San Francisco at ASLA probably 20 years ago, not not the latest conference. So I knew about him, and Garrett Ekbo was my mentor. And, of course, uh, Garrett and Bob were professional partners for 13 years, and mm-hmm. Garrett always spoke very highly of him. So I knew about him. But it actually, the book occurred when Mark Tribe approached me and said, would you be interested in writing about Royston in this uh, UC Berkeley series mm-hmm. on Bay Area designers uh, based on the great uh, archive they have at the University of California, Berkeley, the, the uh, design archive. So I said, okay, well, let me look at his, I want to write about his parks. And, you know, I knew he'd done, done parks, mm-hmm. and I said, well, let's, let me look at the parks, because I don't like to write about anything I don't like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't waste time <laughs> on negative designs. And 
I visited uh, several of the parks, uh, Mitchell Park, uh, Bowdoin Park, uh, Rinconada Park, and I was so impressed with them. I said, no question, I want to write, write this book. Mm-hmm. And then I began, and then J.C. Miller was in the Royston office, and he was very helpful. So I said, well, J.C., let's just team up and, mm-hmm. and write the book together, which mm-hmm. we did. Did Royston's relationship with ECBO carry on beyond their 13 years of collaboration? Oh, yeah. They, they remain very good friends when, you know, the way those offices were set up, ECBO invited Royston to join him in 1945 when Royston came mm-hmm. back from, uh, from the Pacific uh, War. He was in the Navy. And they, they had two uh, divisions of the office, one in San Francisco and one in Los Angeles. And Bob ran the... Uh, San Francisco office for 13 years, and uh, then they they parted very amicably and remained friends for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So. How did they influence one another during their collaboration, and what kind of roles did they each take in the collaboration? Well, actually, they were pretty independent from each other. That Bob ran the San Francisco office. They didn't confer that much about design. I'm sure they, they conferred about economics mm-hmm. and things of that kind, but they had similar design vocabularies, but if, if you compare them, and, and we, we tried to compare them in the book, Bob's are somewhat more serene. Uh, Garrett's are more charged. I mean, mm. he uses a lot of diagonals mm. and, and layering and, and so forth. I mean, Bob does that, but Bob's designs are just uh, a little bit simpler in a, in a good sense of the mm-hmm. word. And I'm sure they exchanged ideas, but they were, they were fairly independent. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting. If you look at Garrett Ekbo's famous book, Landscape for Living, which was you know, one of the great theory books coming out of the post-war period. I used to think, and, and this is a little embarrassing because I wrote an article in this book, that all of that work was that's illustrated in the book was, was Garrett Ekbo's work. Mm-hmm. But if you look very carefully, it's the firm's work, meaning both divisions. So anything from Northern California that's identified in that book is Bob's work. Mm-hmm. And I'd say it's maybe a third mm-hmm. of the illustrated work. I didn't know that. I don't think most people know it. Yeah. And uh, you can see, if you look at that work very carefully, you'll see uh, differences in it in terms of the just the, the formal uh, vocabulary and the, and the complexity of it. When it was being made, it was clearly uh, super contemporary. Yeah. And in your research and your uh, visits to the work that still exists, did you see an evolution in the work, and do you did you feel that do you feel that his his latter work is still up to a contemporary spirit, or is it holding on to some of its its original uh, bones? Well, it's a, it's a hard question to answer <clears throat> because after 1965, a lot of that work was done by a team in in the office, so it's difficult to know what Bob's role was. Certainly he, you know, he signed off on it, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a little bit like the Donnell Garden. You know, how much did Halpern design mm-hmm. that garden versus church? Mm-hmm. So could you, you know, could you say the Donnell Garden is an evolution of church's thought? Well, maybe, maybe not. You see, it's the same, same kind of issue. If we look at a work from, say, 1945 to 1965, I can see some development. I know the parks the best, so I, I'll talk about the park work, but I think you can see the same thing in, in the gardens. 
he starts off with uh, some very clear ideas. He calls the park a public garden. And the reason he does that is to react against the predominant parks in the Bay Area, which were mostly outdoor gymnasia that, mm -hmm. that catered to a very small uh, age range, mostly uh, high school kids or junior high kids, and they're almost all recreational areas tied together by paths. And so he wanted a park that would would really uh, appeal to people of all ages, especially the elderly, who, who, who tended to be totally neglected. And he saw the park as being a garden writ large, a residential garden writ large, that would be a neighborhood gathering place for civic ritual and for all kinds of activities, certainly team recreation and that kind of thing, but also strolling, picnicking, a lot of these parks are heavily family-oriented because demographically at the time, I think over probably 60% or 50% of the people in the Bay Area were uh, young adults with, with children. So he was catering to that, that particular demographic. I don't think he ever changed his notion of a park as a public garden, but, but in the design vocabulary, what you start to see a more sophisticated playground design and in those days, you know, offices designed playgrounds. They didn't get them out of a catalog and weren't worried that much about being sued and, and so forth. So you see very, very imaginative playgrounds, uh, things like pedal car freeways with mm -hmm. kids you know, pedaling around in cars and <coughs> stay in garages at night and all types of... The spray, the spray wading pool, which I think he used some of the first spray pools that ever in design. So you see an evolution in... In the complexity and, and uh, sophistication of the park design, you also see more molding of the ground plane. The designs get sculptural. A lot of these uh, parks are in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area and in the, the San Francisco Peninsula, you know, Atherton, Palo Alto, Santa Clara, where the topography is relatively flat. So he begins to mold the, the ground plane more and more, sculpt it, create berms on the edges or firms that begin to zone out areas of uses. You know, I'm talking now through the 50s, as we start to get into the 60s, up until 65, and it, you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint at an exact time, but some of the detailing becomes, I would say, a bit more rusticated, that you get pavilions that are done with logs or with wood that, that are somewhat reminiscent of arts and crafts type tradition that you find in the Bay Area. And also a greater texture, their stone walls start to appear rather than just precast concrete walls and things of that kind that, that give a slightly more textured view. And then the vocabulary increases a little bit from uh, biocubism in the sense that you find in, in the largest parks, out of Clara Central Park, which is, I think, his, his masterpiece, his 50-plus uh, acre park, where he uses a, a greensward design that's reminiscent of a central park. Instead of layering trees and planes that intersect a, a large space in a park, almost like uh, Barcelona Pavilion walls, which he does at Mitchell, here he, 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 he uses a, a much more open central space with curvilinear edges with deciduous trees. It looks a, a lot like uh, Central Park. So there, there are changes in, in that vocabulary. And I would say the other thing would be more use of 
recycled uh, industrial elements. For example, in Santa Clara Park, there's, there's a great playground, and the, the structure of it, it is really, it consists of uh, these big cubes of marble that have been dr- drilled. The center's been drilled to make the columns for the, uh, I think it's the San Francisco City Hall, and these things were just lying around in a quarry someplace and Royston sees them and has them shipped uh, to uh, Santa Clara and uh, you know there are these if you can visualize them, there's big cubes with it with a circle cut right through the center well you can imagine how kids love to crawl through these things you know? so he, he uses that kind of thing he uses uh, water municipal water pipe caps to, to create seats and things of that kind and you see more and more of that in his final collaboration, like like those of SWA or EDA or Sasaki, yeah. the practice itself has evolved beyond him. How has Royston Hanamoto Alienabi evolved, and still can you see any vestiges of Royston within this this contemporary this contemporary practice? I can't answer that question because I haven't studied their their work after the 1970s very, very, very closely. You know, they have a large office now. It's 50 people. They're very active in uh, their offices in Mill Valley. It's been there for a long time. They have huge projects. If I'm not mistaken, they were shortlisted. I know they were shortlisted for the Orange County Great Park, and I think they may have come in second mm-hmm. in, in that uh, design uh, competition. I noticed that you studied film in 1994. Mm-hmm. Why were you interested in film, and how has this changed the way you? How has this changed your role as a historian? Well, I've always loved film. I grew up across the street in Oakland, California, from a theater. This wasn't exactly cinema paradiso kind of thing, but I did get in free. I knew the manager, and I watched uh, lots and lots of uh, film noir things. And of course, I didn't know what they were at the time in the 1950s, and my father thought I was going to hell, I think, for not reading the classics, but I love film and always have. But the way I got into it was more through wanting to be a more effective uh, teacher. And I can remember having this in the back of my mind for a long time, but it struck me. So the tipping point was one day I was lecturing on the Villa Desta and I was showing slides of the fountains and walking people through the design always think that space is processional and you move through it. If you're talking about a work, you've got to show the processional sequences, at least in most cases. And here were all these frozen fountains. And of course, I've been to the Villa Desta and I said, this is ridiculous. I mean, this doesn't convey the, the life of this mm-hmm. place. So I decided in my next sabbatical to, to enroll in, at USC's very intensive film program in the summer. It's a 10-week program. So I began making films of parks and villas, Italian villas, because I was participating in the uh, Vicenza program. And mm-hmm. So I filmed um, Villa Medici of Fiesoli and Giardino Giusti and Villa Gambaraya. Mm-hmm. And the way I used them is they were simply images set to music. There was no voice of God narration. And I used them to complement my lectures. So I would show, I mean, I would lecture, say, on Villa Gambaraya and go into the history and analyze it uh, analytically and all that sort of thing and relate it to the culture. But then I would show these films where students could just 
try to, to come as close to experiencing what it was like to be there to move through it as mm. possible. And I used period music because I always thought there was a relationship between, let's say, lute music and the rhythms of it and, and the way in which you move through the garden and the way forms were uh, proportioned. So I started that way, and then I started thinking about film as a way to reach a large audience to, to let them know more about what landscape architecture was about. I mean, you know, you've had the experience, you're at the party, you tell people what you do, and mm-hmm. they, they want to know about, their, can you help me with my sick pear tree, or <laughs> can your students design my yard? You, you hear that your, you know, your entire career. And I was thinking, well, you know, this is a medium that reaches a lot of people, and I was thinking about it, and then Rebecca Frischkorn, who's a landscape designer who was living in Charlottesville, and Charlottesville is a small town, had envisioned a television series, a host television series on gardens. And people said, well, you know, you should talk to Ruben Rainey, he's interested in film. And so to make a long story short, we teamed up and have just finished a PBS series of 10 episodes called Garden Story, which deals with the way in which gardens change people's lives and improve their communities. And it's meant to be a consciousness raising film because most people think of a garden as, well, you know, the traditional thing is a place to grow flowers and fruit and Mm -hmm. vegetables, and that's fine. But but we were trying to show that uh, gardens are powerful agents of social change and and, and stability and renewal, both of individuals and and communities. This uh, program will be broadcast, it's actually right now being broadcast to 172 it's the last count, PBS stations around the country, coast to coast, covering the Midwest as well. And that's going to reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And this this type of filmmaking, of course, was much more challenging than what uh, what I had done with my, my teaching videos, mm-hmm. where it was just me and my radio mic and tripod and flying around on airplanes and Mm-hmm. setting up and that kind of thing. This is working with uh, full uh, film crews and interviewing people and the whole business. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. It gets in your blood. I, uh, <laughs> it's springtime now, and I haven't done this for about six months. I'm getting restless, and I want to start doing it again. You're listening to Terrograms, and our guest is Ruben Rainey. Ruben is a William Stone William Professor Emeritus in the Department of Architecture and Landscape Architecture at the University of Virginia. He is also the co-author of Modern Public Gardens, The Suburban Parks of Robert Royston, and the co-executive producer of Garden Story, Inspiring Spaces, Healing Places. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about the gardens that you selected and what types of neighborhoods or environments they're in to, become, to act as these agents of social change? Sure. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, one, and, and one of my favorites, is called the Prudential Outdoor Learning Center, and it's in the inner city of Newark, New Jersey, which we all know is a very troubled city with a high crime rate. And this garden, which is part of the work of the Greater Newark Conservancy, teaches inner city kids ecology, it teaches them pride in their city, it teaches them about their their city's native vegetation or hardy vegetation. The curriculum of the elementary schools and the junior high schools of the city is coordinated with the events in this garden. Kids actually take field trips to this garden and it has a profound effect on them. A lot of these kids, they don't know where food comes from. Uh, they've, they've never really 
experienced a, a butterfly or a ladybug or anything of that kind. So one of the programs is on this particular garden, and it shows these kids coming to the garden on a field trip, and people talk about the impact on the neighborhood. It's like a dropping a rock in a stream. It makes a splash, and the ripples go out into, into Newark. That's one of the most powerful examples. Film is, to me, primarily an emotive medium. Of course, it has a didactic content, and this series does, but it really, I think, moves people to see these kids in, in this particular situation. Another uh, episode has to do with what I used to call Alphabet City when I lived mm-hmm. in New York. But uh, I think developers have now given it, giving it the name of the East Village. Uh, we call it the Lower East Side because that's what the uh, Puerto Rican uh, immigrants call it, mm-hmm. Lower Side. So we kept their their title. So we call it the Community Gardens of the Lower East Side. And I don't know how much you know of that story, but the Lower East Side, when I lived in New York City, was a dangerous place. It was drug-ridden. Uh, landlords had abandoned apartments, uh, there were vacant lots, there were burned out buildings and so forth, and led by a, a remarkable person called Liz Christie in a group called the Green Gorillas, who were a great, you know about a grassroots citizen group who lobbed water bags full of seeds over these vacant lot chain link fences to start these gardens. And slowly these gardens have, have become powerful agents of renewal of this uh, of this portion of New York City and not just not just the Lower East Side but all around Queens Brooklyn Bedford Stuyvesant some of the toughest areas in, in the city they become you know I was a bit of an ignoramus about this because I thought community gardens were mainly places where people grow vegetables and flowers for their you know and, and maybe exchange ideas but they're actually they're more like a New England common in the mm-hmm. old uh, Puritan sense. They're, they're places where people gather for voter registration, for musical concerts, for uh, uh, cookouts, uh, all kinds of social activities that often have a political content to them. And I was amazed at, at, uh, at the way in which they function as centers of, of community. Most of them are, I don't want to exaggerate too much, but most of them are really interracial, intercultural. I mean, you have people working together from uh, just about every ethnic group you can you can imagine in the city of New York, cooperating, and, and they have a tremendous spirit. The reason we chose the uh, Lower East Side had to do with money. I mean, that's the greatest concentration of community gardens in the city of New York. We didn't have the money to move our film crews uh, in, into Brooklyn or, or Queens or these other areas, but I used to work with young junior high street gangs in, in Queens. And so I knew some of these areas, and I knew some of these, these tough neighborhoods, and I was amazed at how these gardens had helped to change them. Now, these gardens, which have really become embedded into the neighborhoods, yes. are on often plots of land that are privately owned. Are they sort of as, for example, the Royston Gardens uh, vulnerable to change? Are they as or even more, more vulnerable to change and disappearance? Well, that's a, that's a big issue. Most of them are on city-owned land because what happened is that landlords abandoned the these. I mean, they just gave up and, and quit paying taxes. So the city repossessed mm-hmm. this land. So it's city-owned land, and they're all. Kind, it's a long story, but uh, certain, uh, like Bette Midler's uh, 
work with the New York Restoration Project, uh, the Trust for Public Land, uh, the New York uh, City Parks Department, a, a variety of agencies have supported these grassroots efforts. As long as the uh, community gardeners themselves maintain these gardens, a lot of them are, are fairly well protected. A lot were lost, particularly during the Giuliani administration in New York. There were huge controversies and demonstrations there because Giuliani wanted to sell the land to uh, developers in, in gentrifying areas of New York and just had no respect for or even understanding of these uh, of these gardens and the, the maps of New York City that were used in these land sales none of them indicated that there were community gardens mm -hmm. on any of these plots but the gardeners rose up they, they even uh, interrupted Giuliani's uh, second inaugural <laughs> you know and got a lot of press and they they battled and uh, they lost a lot of gardens but a lot of them are now fairly fairly stabilized what's a bit ironic about the two examples you give us and some of your past research in garden design is that these are gardens that aren't designed by professionals. They're designed by communities. They're no less loved or no less cherished. Are there any gardens in your series that are gardens that are coming out of the profession of landscape architecture? Sure, lots. One of the most notable examples are in the, they're in the program on healing gardens and we feature gardens that are designed by David Camp who actually is a graduate of the University of Virginia he runs a firm called Dirt Works that operates out of Manhattan just north of Union Square and this program is about the way in which gardens in various types of medical facilities promote uh, healing or, or restoration or, or relief of stress. And there are a number of gardens. One is a garden for AIDS patients at the Terrence Cardinal Cook Hospital. It's right across the street from Central Park, if you know where the conservatory garden is in Central Park. A remarkable garden that caters to the specific needs of, of AIDS patients. And each of these designs are again, tailored to the particular uh, medical problems of the people using these gardens. So AIDS being a progressive disease, you have to deal with different degrees of light and shade and mobility and orientation and uh, paving has to accommodate uh, wheelchairs and uh, IVs and all that sort of thing. David is, actually he's, he won uh, an ASLA award for this, for this garden. Another garden in that same series is called the Life Enrichment Center. It's in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. It's a daycare center for adults, but it caters mostly to people with Alzheimer's or other types of, of dementia. That kind of garden requires a totally different design vocabulary. I, I won't go into all the detail, but you have to be very careful about uh, the paving, if shadow gets on the paving, uh, dementia patients see it as a hole in the ground. If, if it's in the least bit claustrophobic, they won't use it or they'll try to escape from it. So you have to, you have to enclose it, but the, the enclosure wall has to be uh, as little visible as possible. The walk systems have to double back on themselves. You can't lead people into a corner, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
this garden has a very calming influence on the dementia patients. There's a third garden that uh, Sonia Johansson designed in the Rusk Rehabilitation Center in New York, which is for children and children who have either uh, have had neurological injuries or uh, orthopedic injuries. And it's a garden, again, adjusted to their needs. If they're trying to develop uh, digital acuity, there'll be a little house that opens up, the door opens up, there are all these locks that they can play with, or there's slides that have different degrees of uh, steepness to them and all that sort of thing. So all of these gardens are designed by professionals. Uh, there's also in this program the memorial to the 9-11 plane crash in, uh, in Pennsylvania that David designed, which has to do with the planting of memorial groves of trees by the community all over the uh, region to commemorate this event and, and the high school kids uh, look after the tree nursery and things of that kind so uh, everything in that program is designed by a professional mm -hmm. landscape architect. How did you get involved or become interested in healing gardens? It's a course that you taught at the University of Virginia. Yeah, uh, well of course I, I taught history and started to notice that this was a theme that emerged from a lot of, not, well, it could be gardens, but other types of spaces as well. I mean, for example, Hatshepsut's temple in Egypt uh, during the Ptolemaic period was used as a healing shrine and had a long view and had a beautiful, stunning site with a view across the Nile and, and uh, or especially Central Park with, with Olmsted and Vox and Olmsted's uh, notion of the restorative powers of Central mm -hmm. Park and the pastoral landscape and Olmsted himself being a very high-strung, <laughs> nervous person who took his own medicine, so <laughs> to speak, in the park. And unfortunately, he, he ended up in the, uh, I guess you would call it uh, an insane asylum that he designed a site plan for at McLean in, in near Boston. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't help but see that throughout the history of landscape architecture, this was a theme. So I started out teaching this pretty much as an advanced history course. And then I had a, a major illness in 1989, which uh, I was extremely lucky that I'm not talking to you in a wheelchair because I fell off my horse and thought I'd broken a rib and went in for uh, examination. To make a long story short, they found I had a benign tumor that was about to wow. press on my spine. It would have paralyzed me from the chest down. So that was removed. It was a big surgery. I was in the hospital for a long time. And, of course, I started observing the hospital environment very carefully. In fact, redesigning and driving <laughs> people nuts, you know, nurses. <laughs> they were telling them how it should be. And it, it, this was a UVA hospital, which is a very sophisticated hospital. It's ranked in the top 100 uh, hospitals in the country, a great teaching hospital. But it left a lot to be desired. So... When I came out of that experience, I thought, well, you know, I really should use this experience. I've been a patient. I, I understand what people are subjected to. So I changed the course radically and became much more hands-on, in which uh, we started to actually uh, design a, a lot of restorative spaces, healing spaces in medical facilities, but not exclusively medical facilities. I mean, sometimes they can be uh, gardens of meditation. They can be memorial gardens and churches different types of, of spaces that uh, can assuage grief or help stem stress or 
not just entirely negative, but to be places of, of, of delight and, and uplift. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a long story, but that's how I got interested in it. But I, I thought that my own unique experience as a patient, I should put that to use. Has the university it. hospital changed? They have, yeah. One of our early graduates, uh, Miles Thaler, who died of AIDS, before Miles died, he designed, it was a gift to the hospital, but he designed a garden in memory of his partner. And, uh, of course, he left a uh, a very nice bequest for a lecture series in our own department. David Camp has redesigned the entrance of the old, you know, hospitals are like a medieval landscape. They're additive. And, And I don't know what your experience with them has been, but most of them are chaotic. I mean, it's very hard to you know, to orient yourself in a hospital. And David uh, redid the entry of what we call Hospital West, which was a hospital built in the 1950s, a big tower block type of hospital, and improved the circulation and provided a, a restorative garden out front of that hospital. And the new, the new hospital expansion at uh, UVA, the Emily Couric Clinic, Cancer Clinic, it's going to have a roof garden on it. So now I'm not saying that our, we work with people in the medical school and the medical faculty. I mean, the students interview patients, we interview staff, we, we work very closely with the hospital doing all kinds of things. But I think we may have had some influence on um, their consciousness of the need for these things. Of course, a lot of other people did too. And Sometimes it's uh, motivations are not the greatest. There's another hospital in town, Martha Jefferson, which is getting a new building. So hospitals compete with each other for food and ambience and all that sort of thing. So I'm sure that's playing a role. But I think we may have had some influence. You've had a rich academic career or beginning of a career in comparative religion, spending 10 years studying and teaching in the field. Then you slipped into landscape architecture and began teaching at the University of Virginia. How has this core education uh, influenced your role as a landscape architect or historian? Well, it's had a big influence. Some people will will say to me, well, you you really did change fields, and and it just seems such a turnaround, and it's so diverse. Well, I mean, it is in in one sense, in terms you learn technical things and, and so forth in landscape. But if you, if you look at the history of landscape architecture, you'll see that virtually all of the great works have some kind of religious content that determines their, their form and relates the work to, to the culture at large. And I think sometimes this, this tends to be neglected. It depends on, on the type of, of work we're talking about. But for example, it's, it's obvious in, in Zen Buddhist monastery gardens, they're they're deeply enmeshed in, uh, in Zen Buddhist uh, religious consciousness, and they're actually used as, as a means to uh, promote that consciousness and, and to aid a person to, to achieve uh, an enlightenment. But look at anything. Look at Versailles. Versailles is rooted in the notion of the divine right of kings, it, you know, the biblical notion, on and on and on. So as you look at different works, Central Park is deeply rooted in New England transcendentalism, which is a philosophical religious sensibility. So I've been able to use that background to to enrich my own teaching of, of history. And I, you know, I got into landscape architecture because I, I wanted to be involved directly with a profession that 
was dealing with what I, I saw to be the, some of the major issues of, of our time, namely environmental issues. And I like teaching religion. I must say I was successful at it. And, and uh, it, it wasn't that I left something I didn't like. It's just I wanted to get more involved in, in something that was closer to the environmental issues which I saw were so important. This was during the, the late 1960s when the environmental movement really heated up. I was teaching at, uh, at Columbia at the time, and I found that these, uh, this background has dovetailed. I still read works on religion. I'm still interested in it and enjoy keeping involved in that discipline. In fact, I even taught a course here in the Department of Religious Studies one time in, in the psychology of religion, and I'm working now uh, on an essay with a union analyst, a depth psychologist, in which we are trying to apply uh, Jungian uh, archetypal theory to the symbolism of, of the garden at Stourhead, mm. which is a garden that has a deep religious sensibility by Henry Hoare, who had, who had suffered uh, the death of his wife, the death of his daughters, and created a, a garden in which he tried to work out his own uh, Anglican faith in a way, to, a way of understanding these these tragedies that that had happened to him. So. You know, I continue to, mm -hmm. to deal with this. Yeah. Do you see contemporary work being more or less attached to religious religious meaning? Well, it depends on where it is. I mean, if you're doing a public park, <laughs> you know, you've got to be uh, you've got to be careful, of, of, you know, about the separation of church and state. If you're if you're doing a restorative garden in a Roman Catholic hospital, that's that's different. So it depends on the it depends on the context and. As a culture, maybe we don't talk a lot about our, our religious values, uh, except I guess if you're in the religious right, you do. But uh, it's something that, that's not discussed a lot. But I think it's just a matter of, of the context of, of the work itself. You know, religion, you might ask me, you know, what, what do I mean by that? But uh, I, I was lucky enough to study with the theologian Paul Tillich. And Paul Tillich defined religion as whatever concerns you ultimately. And, I mean, really, ultimately, you're not casual about it. So I think in that sense, works of landscape architecture, everyone is working out of some form of religious mm -hmm. consciousness. It's just going to vary. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean you necessarily are Christian or Jewish or, you know, within a religious tradition, but you have ultimate concerns of value. And to me, what, what design is, you ask me, you know, what's design? Well, I think it's basically giving form to value and to your ultimate concerns. And either you're conscious of it, and you think about it, which is theory, and I think it's very important. A theory is absolutely critical, uh, or you don't, and, and you may, you know, you may be executing values that embodying them that you're you're not familiar with. But all this has to do with, I think, religious consciousness, as, as Tillich defined it, his ultimate concern. In Jefferson's design work at UVA, there was a clear social ad agenda. Did he also carry a religious agenda? Well, that's a good question. I think, uh, yes, in the sense that Jefferson believed in human intelligence as uh, a force of, of good in human society that was uh, granted by God. You know, Jefferson wrote a, his own version of the Bible. He didn't write it. He just edited out the uh, text he thought were either hard to understand or, or mysterious. And what was left was it was a system of uh, social and civic values that were 
Well, you, you see it enshrined in, in the Declaration of Independence as well, of course, which he authored. Uh, and he talks about we're endowed by the Creator with certain uh, capabilities. And I think that underlies the design of the University of Virginia. Yeah. You spent the majority of your career here at UVA. How, how did that influence your research and your work as a historian? Well, I think what influenced me here was just the great community of people I had around me. My uh, fellow faculty members, a great department of uh, architectural history, colleagues in landscape architecture who were interested in uh, theory and uh, practice combined. Just a great atmosphere in which in which to work, where people respect each other and talk to each other about their about their ideas, and they're not competing. Or, you know, I taught at some places that were not exactly that way, mm-hmm. such as Columbia, which was like a, within my own religion department at Columbia. I had great relations with my colleagues, but we were always battling other other departments like Italian city states. <laughs> you know, that's not the case here. UVA has just been a tremendous uh, intellectual environment to, to be a part of. And, and the students, we have great students and uh, we're, you know, we spend a lot of time with our students and the students have, have stimulated me with their questions. A lot of things I've researched have come out of questioning by, by my own students. It's been mostly just the people here. I mean, it's a great place to live. It's it's a somewhat calmer place to live. I mean, I love New York City, and I miss it. I have to go up there for my New York fix every <laughs> once in a while. But there's a calmness here which is conducive to to study and, and scholarship, which, which I like. Sometimes it's too calm for, for me, but uh, usually not. You find a way out. Oh, yeah. Well, see, we have a bus here. You get on at 6 a.m., and by noon you're in the Meatpacking District in Manhattan. So not that's bad called the Starlight Connection, but that uh, it's, yeah, it's, you can get to New York pretty quickly from here, or any other place you want to go. Washington, of course, is close. Ethan Carr has, has followed you, I don't want to say replaced you, but followed you in the role of uh, landscape historian at UVA. How will his presence change the, the department? Well, I don't mind the term replace, because Ethan has replaced me. Well, that's up to Ethan, and I'm a great believer in change. I think every school has to keep evolving its people, its curriculum, and and so forth. I have the greatest respect for Ethan. I've known him, I guess I've known Ethan for close to 15 or 20 years, and uh, I admire his scholarship, his books on the National Park Service. I think he's going to do very exciting things. Ethan and I... We talk, and I'm so glad he's here because now he becomes a colleague that that's accessible to me. He's editing the Olmstead papers. We'll probably team up and do some things together. I think we have. I don't want to speak for him, but I think we have a similar approach to the teaching of history and and how one goes about it. So I'm very excited, and I'm sure Ethan brings such a knowledge of the history of American landscape architecture, and he brings his professional experience in the National Park Service and also being the historian of of Central Park, the Central Park Conservancy. So he brings a a very rich background in in practice as as well as scholarship. Do you know Ethan? Have you you met him? No, I haven't. He's a person of enormous energy. He's just starting to hit uh, his full stride right now, and you're going to hear a lot from him. So I'm very excited by him being here. One thing we've talked about, and and this we haven't committed to it, but 
it has to do with Olmsted's religious consciousness, mm-hmm. and because we know that Olmsted, in his youth, underwent a kind of revivalist transformation, was converted, and, and so forth, and then he uh, he moved away from that and, and had uh, a great pastor in, in the church in Connecticut, in Hartford, Horace Bushnell, who was not a believer in radical conversion experiences, but believed in what he called Christian nurture, in which slowly person is nurtured in the faith they don't have to have this rather dramatic conversion experience and then you wonder what how Olmsted reacted to Darwin and, and the origin of the species and, and what his later beliefs may have been because we know that he was not a regular attender in church so we might take a look at, at that together given my background and, and his knowledge of, of Olmsted. Charles Beveridge has written about this some but that might be a project that we, we look at together. Yeah. Do you have any other projects mapped out mapped out for the future? Oh, yeah, lots. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now in the film phase of things, David Camp and I are going to make a film, probably an hour-long film on healing gardens. I have in rough cut form a film about one of our emeritus professors, Mario Valmarana, who, who grew up in Venice. He's from a Venetian family. In fact, his family owns the Villa Rotunda. And I'm working on a, a film about him growing up in Venice during World War II. And that's, as I say, in rough cut form. Another one about living in the Villa Rotunda, which is I've done before, but I'm, I'm re-editing. So that's in, in the film part of things, and I'm sure there'll be others. I'm working on a whole bunch of uh, other projects. The Dan Kiley Symposium, which occurred here in the early 80s, we, we published the proceedings of that symposium, and it's it's been much in demand. It's out of print, and I'm right now re-editing that because apparently Kiley made a very succinct statement of his uh, design philosophy and, and analyzed some of his works, and, and it's become a, a classic statement. I mean, Jane Amidon has written a very fine book on Kiley, but we wanted to reprint that symposium proceedings. There was a panel discussion and uh, also some new critical essays mm-hmm. on Kylie. So that's an editing thing. I've mentioned the, um, the jointly authored book with J.C. Miller on Royston's Gardens, which we are working on now. I mentioned the essay the, with my union friend. Another uh, project is one of our graduates named Dennis Burkow designs mainly in the region around Bar Harbor, Maine, and Dennis has exquisite work, both residential and some civic work and campus planning. I'm involved in a book on his design work. He's ready to to publish. What else? Well, a friend of mine in the uh, psychology department and I want to do an experiment, and we haven't started it, but uh, his name is uh, Jonathan Haidt, and you may know him. He's written a a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Mm-hmm. He's, he's what's known as a positive psychologist who, who studies what he calls experiences of elevation, positive experiences, those that are not uh, you know, neurosis or psychosis. And Jonathan and I want to experiment with different design vocabularies in gardens to see if any one of them has a more therapeutic effect at re- reducing stress than the other. So we're going to use a Japanese garden and a colonial revival garden, two of which exist on an estate that's been given to the University of Virginia. 
and we're going to John knows how to do this. So this was sort of, it was my general idea, but John's the one who's going to operate everything. We'll put people in these two gardens and subject them to uh, memories of stress and then see how long they, it takes them to recover from this and see if one design vocabulary is more effective than the other. I have no idea what to expect. I'm not even sure that, given all the variables, that you know we can pull this off, but we're going to try it. Sounds curious. Well, it'll, it, it, it might have some very interesting results, or it, it might not work. So that's, that's another thing that, uh, that I'm involved with. Will, will we see your teaching films crop up on YouTube? You know, it's interesting. I never thought about it. I, I've, I'm having trouble keeping up with the digital revolution mm. because there's so many opportunities that keep popping up. That's, yeah, I probably could, could put them on there. They're, they're a little bit long, subject to editing. I'm very self-critical about <laughs> the films that I make, always trying to make them better, but that's a possibility. <laughs> or maybe on, uh, uh, what is it, iTunes University, that's <laughs> another possibility, <laughs> which uh, we might put some of the Garden Story things on there. There is a, a DVD. I, I should come back to the Garden Story television series and say that one thing that both Rebecca and I hope for the series is that it will continue to be used, that it's not going to be one of these ephemeral TV documentaries. It disappears. And already we've gotten requests from, uh, just the other day I got a request from a middle school teacher in, in the East Village saying that he wanted to show this series to his students to help them develop pride in their community. So that's great. That's exactly what we want. I mean, the Healing Landscapes program, we may distribute it to uh, nursing schools and things like that. So we want to use this uh, series as, as a, something, a powerful teaching tool for people in different, uh, different areas. I guess we'll be talking about that. I'm sure you'll have some suggestions <laughs> as to where we can play these things. We have a website which has resource materials in case you're interested in, in more about community gardens. We have uh, bibliographies and uh, links and website information where you can pursue. What's, what's the website? What's the address? www.gardenstory, one word, dot org. We'll be changing that. Right now, the website pretty much describes the programs but we're adding more and more of the bibliography to it. We'll, we'll, we'll add this link to our website. Great. It'll be in the, the show great. notes. That'd be great. These connections you make between the practice or the role, the impact that landscape can have on, on communities or on individuals is really, really impressive. We look forward to, well, personally, I look forward to seeing the garden story and the story and following these other smaller, no less significant projects. Royston's Gardens, the work of David Camp, revisiting the Kylie Symposium. Sounds like you're going to be busier now than you were three years ago while you were teaching. Thank you very much, Ruben, for, for joining us on, on Terrograms, and good luck with, with all of your, your work. Thank you, Craig. It's been my pleasure. Ruben Rainey is the William Stone Weedon Professor Emeritus in the Department of Architecture and Landscape Architecture at the University of Virginia, as well as a co-author of Modern Public Gardens, The Suburban Parks of Robert Royston. In addition, he is the co-executive producer of Garden Story, inspiring spaces, healing places, the 10-part public television series. Gentlemen, good luck.
Thank you for joining us for the 12th Dispatch of Terrograms. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the 12th delivery of Terrograms. I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told first kicks in after a few weeks, and I was busy looking for another job, and I also have a heart condition, and I told him I have a heart condition. I said, here, take a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you, just but just leave me alone. I'm not the person who, who deposited us. Myself, April, Tammy, and Brad. Rainbow, 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 rainbow